you know, to the Dalai Lama or something like that, you kind of wonder if you're in some sort of mystical uh, setting, even though in a lot of ways it was. It was his study in, in his home in Vienna. It's flat. But the idea was is that uh, he was very understanding. He, he understood. When I, I explained him some things that I, I don't want to go into here. They were very metaphysical in nature in terms of my life experiences. And he, he, he totally said he understood exactly what I was talking about, uh, which was, you know, mind-boggling for me. And then when I uh, I told him about the uh, the book that I was working on, uh, that's when he grabbed my arm. I, I write about that book. He grabbed my arm and he said, Alex, yours is the book that needs to be written. And um, that became kind of a, a stamp on my soul. Uh, and uh, it stayed with me ever since. And that's why I said I will always be, um, you know, not just grateful and feel blessed and honored that I've met him, but also feel uh, loyal to his, his life and legacy. And that's, that's never going to change in my, in my life. It hasn't. It will. Welcome to the show, I'm Joe Horton. On the Guild of Dads show, we unwrap weekly the incredible stories, skills and expertise of the world's most captivating dads and experts, along with topics that will captivate you. Fascinating individuals, writers, entrepreneurs and anthropologists, professors, psychologists and today we find out about the subject of meaning. The inspiration of Victor E. Frankel in inspiring my guest to write his book, Prisoners of Our Thoughts, and how meaning, or more accurately, lack of it, is having a catastrophic effect on society and even individuals right now. Every conversation we have translates the experience and expertise of our guests into practical knowledge you can use to better understand yourself as a dad and in the process improve your physical health, mental health, relationships, career, and the way you show up in the world as a role model to the next generation. We also cover tricky subjects from all angles and viewpoints to give you a new and different perspective. A little while back, I read Victor Frankl's seminal work, Man's Search for Meaning, which had a big impact on me and was pivotal in me starting Guild of Dads as a podcast and movement for dads. Indeed, it underpins our tagline, which is vision, action and meaning. My guest today, affectionately known as Dr. Meaning, is professor, best-selling author, columnist and founder of the Global Meaning Institute, Alex Patakos. We delve into how Alex's discovery of Viktor Frankl's book in his high school days took him on a lifelong fascination with the topic. The horrific times Frankl lived in, but how inspirational he was, particularly in letting go of collective guilt around his treatment at the hands of the Nazis. The difference between logotherapy and some of the more traditional forms of psychotherapy and the practical application this has in terms of taking responsibility for one's own future rather than blaming others for the past. Our discussion also tackles how lack of meaning is manifesting itself right now and why stifling of honest and open discussion is preventing people from finding meaning. If you ever wonder how some of my amazing guests get to where they are in life, the athletes, the entrepreneurs, those making a massive impact in the world, I can tell you that pretty much all of them follow a very deliberate plan or system of some kind. This is exactly what I do too, and I'm revealing how you can implement a plan and system in your own life completely free in my ebook, The Dad Blueprint, over at guildofdads.com forward slash dad. Incidentally, Many of the people I interview on this show will be leveraging the power of similar systems to radically level up their lives 
and transform into the men and dads they always wanted to be. So you will be in amazing company. And now to my conversation with Alex Patagos. Alex, welcome to the Guild of Dads podcast. Uh, thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Likewise, likewise. I'm very honoured to have you on here speaking to me today, just simply because the book that we're going to discuss uh, was heavily influenced by uh, someone who has had a massive influence on my thinking, uh, my uh, the way in which I live my life, and also the impact that I want to have on other people and that is the late great Viktor Frankl um what I wanted to ask you first Alex is when did your interest in Viktor Frankl first begin and start to really kind of develop well yeah that's that's a question that I can I can probably travel back in time to uh, my high school days which is probably the first time I read Man's Search for Meaning and during that time, I, uh, I was probably always kind of the uh, odd person out in a lot of ways in school in terms of my interests. I had, you know, it's a strength and it's also kind of a curse being interested in many, many things. Um, and, you know, maybe they didn't call it attention deficit disorder then, but I always seemed to jump on new things and new projects and new ideas. And one of the threads that I eventually learned uh, kept me going was this thread of meaning through all of my life experiences, whether they were personal experiences, whether they were educational uh, opportunities I uh, had, and whether it was a job uh, situation, whether working with my parents or my, you know, my family and so forth. <clears throat> so, so I could go all the way back then to a teenager where, you know, of course I hadn't met Victor Frank at that time, but I certainly was drawn to that uh, particular way of thinking. Um, and then it even became more important later in life when I was uh, in the military uh, because I was trained in a, more of a Freudian, neo-Freudian approach uh, working in the mental health field. And so I realized that that type of model or framework, um, it didn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. So when I remember going back to my years in high school all the way to you know in my uh, early 20s when I was in the, uh, in the military, uh, really started to change my way of thinking. And I said, I have to devote myself to something if it's not meaningful in terms of the values and objectives that I don't want to go there. And so, you know, that steered me in a lot of ways that maybe as I look back on it, I can say, well, do I have regrets? I need to do this or do that. You know, as I look back on it now from my, my position uh, today, no, I mean, it's like I probably would never have done anything differently because mm-hmm. if it wasn't meaningful, that was the guy, that was my compass uh, was finding things that were meaningful, doing public service, uh, treating people with uh, with respect. I mean, these are all things that were values that were very important to me, going all the way back to a young child, and you know, especially as a teenager, because that's when I was actually reading Frankl's work. So, so I'm always driven by his, uh, not just his brilliance and his ageless wisdom, but his legacy. I mean, he, uh, you know, he lived, as you know, uh, having read his book and, and, and read our Prisoners of Our Thoughts, you know, he lived uh, in, in times that were much more horrific than we're facing today with this pandemic and to to see somebody who's so inspirational who's so able to uh, overlook and not hold people responsible for his situation um was eye-opening for me i mean that's 
and we can talk about that a little later, mm. he was he argued against the notion of collective guilt. And so you know, those are the kinds of things that really were drivers, and they were intrinsic drivers for it. I mean, it wasn't something about money, it wasn't about pleasure, which I'll get into in terms of the different models. It was really something inside me. It was a, it's like almost in my DNA, and that's why I resonated with Frankl's ideas and his wisdom and his life experience. So you know, because uh, it's he was, he was a remarkable person, and uh, and his life uh, uh, really became a light for me. And so I, I'm really blessed to be able to say that I'm standing on his shoulders. Mm, yeah, and you talk about the different types of uh, uh, psychoanalysis that there was at that time. And, and how you were attracted to uh, logotherapy, which is uh, Frankl's specific type of uh, therapy. What do, you, what do you think attracted you, attracted you to Frankl and logotherapy more so than some of the other types of ther- psychotherapeutic yeah. uh, techniques, if, you could, yeah, if, if that's the right word for them, yeah. more, so than, more so than the others? Yeah, well, I think that the thing... In, in my life, I was probably most attracted to not so much his system of psychotherapy per se, even though I did work in the mental health field, both in the military and when I got out, but I was more fascinated and intrigued by his approach, what, he, what, he, what we call logo theory, his theory behind, his philosophy behind his therapeutic approach and his techniques of existential analysis in terms of how to analyze different situations that human beings find themselves in and that was the driver for me because my background in is is kind of multifaceted um and my my training academically is in not only in, in political science but it's in uh, political organizational psychology um in addition to my humanistic side when i was involved in in working for uh, in, in the mental health field and so uh, i was always interested in like what drives people to make different types of decisions and Frankl's idea of the will to meaning, it's not only resonated with me, but it's, it's some, it's, again, it's become that compass compared to, say, uh, the Freudian approach, which is that pr- pleasure principle, the will to pleasure, or Alfred Adler's, the other Viennese uh, sculptor's uh, notion of the will to power, which also includes the idea of money um, and trying to have control over your environment. Well, obviously, when you're somebody in a concentration camp, as Dr. Frankel was, I mean, he didn't have control over his environment. He had control over his own response to the environment. And so that was, to me, like an eye-opener. And and, and the interesting thing is because it also resonated with me because so much of what he talks about, even the name logotherapy, has deep Greek roots. And so when I go back and I look at, you know, the the, the work that I've done in the area of, of writing the Opal Way book with my wife Elaine, uh, we get we went back to the pre-Socratics, we went back to, you know, the, the great thinkers in the Western world, the Western civilization, i.e. the Greek uh, approach, and realized that they were struggling over 2,500 years ago with the same search for meaning question. Mm. And I think that that's the part that really made it, because, you know, it's not enough for me to see uh, that, well, if we, you know, have pleasure in our life, that there's no guarantee that that pleasure, true pleasure, is going to last very long. It's very fleeting. It's more than likely it's external. We shop until we drop. We have we do sex. We have all this kind of thing. But what is it that drives the intrinsic human being uh, to do things that actually are uh, that go beyond themselves? 
and that's where the meaning approach, that uh, meaning-centric uh, psychotherapeutic approach and the philosophy and the existential analysis approach uh, probably fit in the, the best in my mind. And, with, and Dr. Frank referred to this as a, as a height psychology as opposed to depth psychology. So it's like the idea being is that, you know, I don't really care so much about necessarily, totally, how I was trained to do, you know, my potty training. Uh, and what impact. I mean, there may be some things about it maybe that affected me in certain ways, but I'm more interested in from here going forward, how can I improve my life? What are the things I need to do now? Because I could spend all my time looking in the rearview mirror and saying, I should have done this. Why did I do this? Oh, that experience is driving me nuts. Because, you know, as again, as, as, a, as an Army veteran, uh, you know, there are many people of my genre and you know, my, my vintage, my age, who had experiences uh, they're either similar or worse than mine, or even less so than mine, who uh, you know are living on the street. They're unable to, uh, to, to really find joy and meaning in their life. Uh, and I feel for them. That's why I'm very, much, very dedicated to helping veterans. Um, but what is it about you know, their lives and their motivations that forced them to move in a direction in which they became homeless or whatever? Some of it is systemic. Some of it is, you know, the medical model of how we treat people. We load them with drugs, pharmaceuticals. Um, but I want to go deeper into the intrinsic. What are the things that are inside people that maybe we can we can help them uh, flourish mm. in a way that um, they've never done before? Yeah. And, and I think Franco's approach is the one that is the most in line with my thinking mm. in that regard. Yeah, and it sounds like what you're saying is is that is that is that it's actually this notion of taking responsibility for your future rather yeah. than blaming somebody else for your past. That's a That's distinguishing right. feature between these two different schools of thought, which yeah. is which Absolutely. which seems to have formed out of out of necessity in some respects when Frankel was in the in 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 the position he was in a concentration camp and didn't have any control over those the external. Uh, the external things that were going on, the only thing that he could control was what was going on inside and, and how he took responsibility for what was going on inside. Yeah, and I know that that sounds to a lot of people who might be listening. They say, well, that's good for him. Or, you know, he was a superhero in his own way or whatever. No, it's not. We all have that capacity. And I think that's the part that makes it very uh, uh, important for the work that you're doing, the work that I'm doing, and others like us uh, to help people recognize that they do have a, a personal responsibility for their own lives and how they approach life. Obviously, we want to see society improve in such a way where we also have a collective responsibility to ensure that people are, in fact, uh, you know, have opportunities to excel, to reach their full potential. Um, I'm not always convinced that the politics we see today are going to allow that to happen, but that's, you know, that's, another, uh, that's another podcast. Um, so the idea is, is that, you know, you're right. I mean, we have, we, we do have something in us, but that's something also that is important to Frankel and to the work that probably, you, you know, you're doing and I'm doing as well in that when you talk about meaning, you start talking about, uh, the kinds of things that bring joy and fulfillment into our lives. So many of those things are intrinsic. They're not extrinsic. It's not about how much money we make or whatever, where we live. they're intrinsic. And then on top of that, they're self-transcendent values and experiences so it's extending beyond ourselves and you know victor franco wrote another book that was based he was like basically his his doctoral thesis uh in philosophy 
that was translated in English as man's search for ultimate meaning because he was a very spiritual person as I am as well. And so the idea is, is that if you don't believe in spirit, if you're, if you're basically uh, so secular in your thought that you can't imagine anything outside of ourselves, and the only, and this is unfortunately what many of the existential philosophers in the, say the 20th century especially, believe that, you know, this is it. When we die, we just, you know, we die. You know, we fertilize the soil or whatever. And they don't necessarily believe in that sense of self-transcendence and spirituality. And I'm not talking necessarily about a particular faith-based orientation or religion, denomination. I'm talking about do we, if we, are we so arrogant to think that there's nothing beyond us? Um, I don't think we should. I think that there is something. There's something greater than ourselves. And if we don't have that sense, uh, you can imagine why. And in fact, we found that in, in his experience. I found that in my own military experience that people who gave up on life, who didn't believe there was anything beyond where we are right now, uh, were much more likely uh, to either succumb to despair, uh, boredom, uh, you know, become depressed, become suicidal. Mm. And we're going to see that today. I mean, when we're talking about these lockdowns. I mean, so much of the collateral damage that's being done, and I truly believe, and, I, and I, again, this is where I'm really frustrated by this cancel culture. There's a lot of science, quote-unquote science out there, that, that refutes some of the ways that we've been approaching this, this virus. And that's more a concern to me than anything else. It's not so much about whether there is a virus or not. I'm not going to be a conspiracy theorist and say, well, the Chinese did this as a biological you know, weapon, warfare weapon. Um, I'm more interested in saying, okay, well, wait a minute, how, how can we best deal with this? And you know, when I see, and I see this, the number, the percentage of people who are having mental you know, challenges, and I'm, t- I'm talking about severe ones, right? Um, depression, uh, increase in, in domestic violence, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, and so forth. I mean, I think the collateral damage is going to be much greater. And this is a case where, even though in the States, people made fun of Donald Trump, you know, we're talking about, well, we don't want the the cure to be worse than the disease, I think at some point we have to, I mean, you want to talk about a woke culture, we need to awaken ourselves to the fact that, you know, we may be dooming ourselves <laughs> by mm. not allowing people to get sunshine, to get to get air. To, to I mean, when I think about all the, the older people who didn't get a chance to celebrate the holidays with their families, they may not have holidays this next year. Mm. That was it. And it's like we're, we're, take, we're robbing people, and yet under the name of the guise of public health. But the issue is that when you go to, and I, you know, I know I, I look at some of the BBC programs and so forth, you know, their idea of, of discussion about any of these issues is we have the far left, the middle left, and the, the near left. They're all discussing it from the same position. Mm-hmm. But we don't have point counterpoint. We don't say, wait a minute. They all say, well, we're following the science. Well, you know, I have a PhD. I've, re- I've been reading the research results and all this stuff. I see a lot of things that could be done that are different. I have many friends who are, who are, who are medical doctors who are basically saying, here's some other options. Here's some ways to prevent and Im- improve our immune systems and so forth. But we cancel people out in that way. And, that's, and I think that's the, a big issue for us. And I think, so the whole notion of, of going back to my earlier comment about spirituality and self-transcendence, if we move into a, a totally secular view of our society, then we're going to basically uh, eliminate, you know, I'm not just talking about, you know, the, uh, you know, the fact that there's a, a, uh, an anti-Christian view, but there's going to be all kinds of things that you can't do because you've got to fit into a box mm. and say, this is the way society wants you to speak. 
This is what society wants you to do and how you're going to behave. This is how you're supposed to think. And that's not the way the ancient, you know, that Socrates was in, in, in Plato and so forth. No, it's interesting. It's interesting you say that because I, I frequently walk in the woods at the back of my back of back of my property, and 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 sometimes you know one of my things that I do on a particularly on a Saturday or weekend is I I will walk I'll, not with a phone just by myself, and I can hear the wind whistling in the trees, and I can hear in the summer I can feel the 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 warm sunshine on my face, and I look up amongst the trees, and I think to myself, "How insignificant am I? These trees have been here for like hundreds of years. They'll probably outlive me, some of them." And the idea that that doesn't that that experience that experience doesn't exist, you know, and you don't have to be religious to 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 consider that like a spiritual experience. But what I've what I've pondered in the last little while, and it, and it comes back to this whole discussion of awareness and awareness of our thoughts and awareness of uh, an awareness of the relationship we have with ourselves I wonder whether and you may correct me on the actual terminology on this whether in the last little while people have become so egocentric and so where I think about it like this in the sense that when I you know I, I've looked at ancient traditions like stoicism and stuff and similar to similar to um the greeks they were interested in in cultivating the awareness of the mind and and this concept of you know not letting your kind of emotions run the show so to speak and i can't help thinking that in the last little while the ego has taken the driving seat in the car and the seat of awareness is the passenger with his with if with his mouth taped up and tied up with rope in the in the back seat, and and I, and I've thought about this in the last little while. I think we're seeing this on a personal level, i.e., individuals their egos are running the show. But more worrying, and I think this speaks to what you're saying about people, you know, not being able to have rational discussions about stuff. The egos are running the show so much now that you're getting other negative virtues virtues which is which one of them i would say is hubris people if, if someone is speaking to the way the pandemic has been dealt with if someone says look you're not this isn't working uh we have an alternative view you know most yeah. people would say okay well i need to park my pride and my hubris and my ego at the door and listen to what's being said to me but there seems to be an inability for people to do that at the moment, which is, and I don't know what the answer to that is, how we get back to a point where human beings are able to say, right, okay, I'm going to park this emotional part of my being at the, to, to one side so I can actually listen rationally, un, unhubristically to what this individual is saying to me and actually have the... Uh, uh, have the humility to say we've got this wrong no one I don't think anyone I don't think anyone would castigate someone for saying we've got this wrong we need to do it we need a change of tack here and we need to change because you know ultimately Einstein's definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting a different result and this is what we're seeing playing out on a on a on a, on a societal and governmental level you know what I mean yeah, no, I absolutely understand what you're saying, I, and I agree with you. I, I think one, one place where I push back is that I'm not 
convinced that it's that it's the ego, small e, that's holding people back. Because in the current time, with this last year especially, uh, with masks and social distancing and the shutdown and so forth, what I would say is that, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about things like systemic racism happening in different countries around the world. And I would say that we are suffering also from systemic cancellation. Mm-hmm. And this cancel culture is basically driven by a system, the system being, i.e., government, cor- large corporate uh, entities, uh, obviously the big social media folks and so forth. And so what's happened, and I've, I've observed this wherever I go, even during this pandemic, quote, I'm going to put this in quotes here, um, I've seen people attacked, and I've been accused of this myself, of being too egotistical because I question the way we are responding to COVID-19. And I question some of the things that have been done, both in terms of prevention, treatment, uh, how, you know, the, the impact it has on families, on local small businesses, or whose people's livelihoods have been destroyed. And the fact that I question those things, people have accused me of being egotistical, narcissistic, even evil, because I don't care about public health, which is totally the opposite of who I am as a human being. And so what's happened is, is that we're being, and and I'm going to tell you where I think one of the sources of this problem is, there's several sources, but I'll tell you the one I think is a key driver, is that we have a societal context, that a framework that is trying to push people down under the guise of you care about humanity, you care about public health, so therefore, be a good, you know, they refer to them as sheepies. Be a good sheepie, follow the rules, do all this stuff. Because if you don't be a sheepie, you're egotistical, you're narcissistic, you're evil, you don't care. And where I see some of the drivers behind this, of course, you've got the government regulators, you know, and the, and the police state, if you will, at whatever level it is. I mean, it looks like martial law in Washington, D.C. today, as I speak. Secondly, you've got the entertainment industry and the, uh, and the social media driving a certain narrative that doesn't allow people to voice an opposing opinion. And then more fundamentally, which is going on for probably decades, I fault the educational system from primary school, secondary, elementary, and higher ed, that we are basically no longer encouraging people to study in Plato's Academy. We're not asking them to know thyself. We are asking them to behave and to follow a certain language, certain political speak, certain types of behavior patterns. And I think that is, is, is unlike when I was went to school, I'm very proud actually to be as old as I am and to be alive still to this day, to be able to say that I had a great education. I had, I was part of a debating society and wondered how to even have debating societies. Uh, I had many, many friends of every race, color, creed, and we could agree to disagree. Mm. But we expressed ourselves. And, I, and I've written about this. I said, look, if you don't express your opinion, you might as well not have one. But we're not allowed to express our opinion. We're not allowed to go on, on TV. We're not allowed to, I mean, your podcast after today might get shut down because you and I are talking about this. I mean, who knows? And so it's, is this, is it the ego that's stopping people from talking? No, it's, it's the, this collective notion that we should behave and that we shouldn't speak out against things that we are seeing, observing, 
you know, even some of the stuff that's so logical. I mean, how in the heck can you wear a mask to go into a, when you could? Now we're shut down. Go into a restaurant. You, you know, and then as soon as you sit down, you can take your mask off. The virus, which just goes over your head. I mean, it's like what, nobody's even asking these questions. Like, you know, what is going on here? You know, mm-hmm. and so how did people? Does anybody explain to anybody why six feet is the distance for social distancing? What about five feet eleven inches? What about six feet one inch? I mean, like, but we all talk about it like trust the science. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying is that. Dr. Fauci in the United States, the CDC, the World Health Organization, they vacillated down all over the place. But yet we all call it, when they say it, it's somehow science. But we cancel out the scientists who are saying, well, maybe you don't need to do that. Mm. Here's some other ways of building your immune system. Here's some ways. We don't, we, we don't have everybody dying. I mean, what, what, why, is, why is nobody asking? I mean, we are, but most people asking, whatever happened to the flu in the past year? Whatever happened to, you know, like people giving statistics that say, here, you know, you've got 85% of the people over age 80 who are in ICUs, and then here are the ones who are dying, and they died, but here are their, you know, all the other factors they had when they were admitted to the hospital or whatever. And so we start to understand yeah. logically, analytically. I'm not even talking about emotionally and spiritually yet, uh, what is going on. Mm. And so the issue is, I, don't, I wish people had stronger egos that they would stand up I, I ended up watching uh, not too long ago another, uh, I'd seen it a long time ago, but the movie, I don't know if you've ever seen it, V for Vendetta. Yeah. And, and you know what I mean? It's like, where where's V? Where's somebody to stand up and say, we're not going to take this anymore. You know, this is ridiculous. I mean, and I'm not talking about in violent ways. I'm mm. talking about standing up. and you know, but yeah, we're not Civil disobedience, we used to call it, I think. Yeah, yeah civil we're disobedience. We're not given the platforms. Not, media doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't allow us to go and talk about this openly. We have a, we have a, but you know, but they're saying, well, you're too egotistical. You know, I mean, Joe, you want to talk about what it takes to be a good dad. Well, we're not going to have dads anymore. <laughs> you know, we're going to call them parent number one and parent number two and parent number three, whatever. We're not going to have anything that shows that, you know, that you've got to be a, a, a dad. And so, you know, the issue is, is and, I, and I, maybe you don't want to identify as a dad. I want to identify as, you know, some, uh, as a horse. So therefore I'm allowed to do that. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, we're, we're, we're at a place of such absurdity in this postmodern world mm. that we need. And again, I know I'm getting myself into a kind of more of a political arena. <laughs> it's fine. Be careful. But the idea is, is that where's the meaning of all this? You know, I mean, what are we, what's the end, what's the end game? Yeah. And as you said earlier, I mean, many of these people that are protesting in favor of the government controls and the lockdowns and so forth, if you ever ask them real deep questions about, you know, the logic behind things, whatever, they have no idea. They don't, like you said, they, they don't understand what's the meaning of toxic. They have no idea. Mm. They don't do that work, mm. you know, and it's like they just follow like sheep. Whoever tells them, well, you know, if you do that, and, you know, and it's even worse now because, you know, not only are you a male, you're a white male. All right. That's another, that's another point. Check against you. So what can you say? I mean, you're going to. And so we're, we're just getting to the point where we're not. And, and like yesterday was Martin Luther King Day in the United States. You know, Martin Luther King was one of my idols, you know, and he was one of my inspirational role models. And I'm thinking, you know, he would, where would he be today? Mm. He'd be, I don't know where he'd be. You know what I mean? John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Remember John F. Kennedy, good Democrat, Democrat, you know, you know, ask not what you know, your country could do for you. What can you do for your country? I mean, that stuff's almost gone into the wind. It's like ancient history. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I don't know where it's going, but I, but I, 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 I'm saying this mainly because I don't think we have strong enough egos to stand up for what's right. Interesting. And for even what we believe in. It might not mm. be right. 
because there's no necessarily one truth. But, well, if we're, if we're being shut down, then it's going to be very difficult to find meaning. And, and, and I, I feel sad for all the people who are losing their sense of meaning at home because they're shut down. They're maybe older, retired people, people that don't have loved ones nearby. I feel sad for the people who are losing meaning because they spent all this time to build their business and it's now gone. I mean, it's like, can we not, I mean, this is collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And how does that sit, how does that sit with, what I'm intrigued by as well, Alex, is how that sits with you given how heavily influenced you are by uh, Viktor Frankl. Because, because, because in, we know what happened in Germany in the 1930s. And, you know, the, again, this seems to be something that is not really mentioned at all. But a lot of the tactics that are being used at the moment, you know, the silencing of dissent, the uh, the uh, restrictions put on people's lives, the using the pandemic as a justification for these measures right you know i can't help but look at that knowing what i do about the history of world war Two, and 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 the changes that went on in germany in the 1930s uh, and think that is straight out of a tyrannical handbook and 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 i can't see how anyone could not i don't know whether people have got short memories or they they don't want to think about that prospect but a lot yeah, well, of this stuff, into, many, yeah. yeah, many people have a short memory. Other people don't know because they're not educated. I mean, we're rewriting history, which is another totalitarian step is you end up, you know, not only banning certain books, you rewrite what history has, you know, in, in order to fit a narrative. And so, so there are a lot of things that are going on, a lot of forces going on here. I totally, I mean, obviously I disagree with this. I, anytime I say something, you know, and I've been accused of this. I mean, I, I, I did a, a social media posting uh, not that long ago in which I mentioned the, the really evil words, all lives matter. All lives matter. This is during the time when all the, the burning in the cities and the states and Black Lives Matter and this thing. And I obviously I believe Black Lives Matter. I believe all, all lives matter. I don't necessarily believe what the organization and the funding and the, and the political ideology that's behind that movement. And, but because I use the word, the words all lives matter in my posting, I was accused of being uh, literally, and these are some people who are supposedly should know better, I was accused of using code for all right philosophies. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not all right. <laughs> and I'm anything but, right? So, and the issue is that I'm trying to be as centrist as I can. And being centrist and bridging people on the left and the right and everywhere in between in this day and age, is almost impossible because people, the media doesn't want to know that. I mean, the entertainment industry doesn't want to know that. I mean, everything is like a, there's, there's a certain cast that's been mm. put in, you know, and you got to be in that cast. And so my main goal is to get people to open up, to, have, to engage in authentic conversations and authentic dialogue, which dialogue also has a root word of logos in it, which is a Greek word, and that's the root word of logotherapy. And get people to actually have converse and, and agree to disagree, as you know, as I used to do, you know, in my younger years. I'm not saying everything in my younger years, in that time period, that era was great, and you know, and, and it wasn't the Garden of Eden. You pull out the best things of different, you know, different time periods. I don't want to get rid of all trees just because they're too old now. You know, they're over 100 years old, so we don't want to have trees. You know what I mean? And it's like take care of the environment, take care of people's social welfare, so forth. I, I certainly agree with that, but I also agree that people have personal responsibility to work. 
to be respectful, to, to have goals. To, you know, I, I, I believe they should be in school and be, and be given opportunities to aspire to, to, to reach their highest potential. And so I think that these are the, some of the things. And so it's very, very frustrating for me at this stage in my life because I, you know, I lost a lot of uh, you know, brothers and sisters during my time uh, in the U.S. Army. And it bothers me because I've been trying as best I can to live my life with meaning, not just for myself, because that's not really the whole story. The, the, the whole story is I'm living my life because of all my fallen comrades mm-hmm. did not get a chance to, to live beyond their early 20s in some cases, mm-hmm. in some cases the late teens. And so for me to complain about my life, to not want to be opinionated, to not want to express myself, would basically mean that all the freedoms that you know they fell for, they died for, um, that I, I can't take them for granted. I got to say, look, I have to stand up for something. And so the idea behind the search for meaning is we all should be going there and we should all should be looking, but, but it, it's hard work. You know mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, why is it that men, you know, are just now starting to catch on to doing some meaning centered questioning about their lives, mm-hmm. their relationships, their jobs, you know, whatever, uh, their kids. Uh, I think this is something that's finally coming into the forefront, but it's coming at a time where it's going to collide with an ideology that doesn't want that to happen. And I think that's the irony of the whole thing. This whole collectivist, secular, socialist, communist approach that I'm witnessing, you know, uh, at this day and age and in, in, in the Western world is it's ironic because just like you said, people don't know what toxic is. They don't even know what the hell communism is. Mm. They have this, you know, these young people that are running around marching and you know, doing all this stuff and everything else. I mean, they have no idea. They've never been in a communist country. They've never done anything. They've never seen this stuff. And, they and maybe they're, they've never even studied it in school because the school doesn't want them to know about this mm. sort of stuff. Yeah. And, it's, and, and so, you know, we, we take down statues. I mean, keep the goddamn statues up, pardon my French, and put a little plaque next to it if the person, you know, did this or that. But don't erase all of history because if we erase it all, we're bound to repeat it. Yeah. And then it's going to be doing the same kind of stuff you're talking about that, uh, you know, like, going over and over again the same thing and expecting a different result i mean let's learn and grow and this mm-hmm. is the i think this is one of the most powerful messages that comes out of victor Frankl's life and legacy is he was able to do that in spite of the horrific experiences that he had in his life mm-hmm. and he was able to be a role model for others and to inspire other people and to give them hope and a, a, you know some sort of a manifest destiny if you will mm-hmm. and, I, and I, i'm hoping that you're doing that that i'm doing that and we can still before we get shut down completely and canceled. I'm going to jump in here very quickly. If you have listened for any period of time, you will know that I place a massive value in having a group of other men around you to elevate what you think is possible for yourself. I want to tell you about the exclusive brotherhood I've put together called the Dad Circle, which is a group of dads committed to improving themselves in a number of areas in order to become the men and dads they always wanted to be. Not just this, but hardwired into the fabric of this brotherhood are a number of features, including weekly Zoom calls, monthly topics, challenges, and assignments, together with a growing library of resources, fitness, and mental challenges. You'll get just the accountability that you're looking for when you're surrounded by a group of other men looking to level up and go on a journey in exactly the same way. If this resonates with you and you would like to find out more, head on over to www.thedadscircle.com forward slash join. That's thedadscircle.com forward slash join. 
<laughs> Hopefully not. The podcasts at the minute are one of the few places that are, I won't say untouchable yet, but they're yeah, yeah. but they're yeah. There's there's discussions no. ar- there's discussions around what is gonna what is gonna be the future of it, and it could well yeah, be the that knocking, the police are knocking at your door there, Joseph. <laughs> not yet, not yet. <laughs> Fortunately, so how did your meeting with Frank actually come about, and what was it? What was it like? Was it the first time you met him? Because because he passed away in nineteen ninety seven, which I think yeah. is the same year that you met him, wasn't it? I think. Well, that was the year before. Year before, okay. The year before is the, the picture that's in the book, and uh, at the time um, I had been uh, I had been uh, elected president of a non international non profit uh, professional association called Renaissance Business Associates RBA, and RBA's goals, you know, uh, were to elevate the human spirit in the workplace uh, and to advance uh, sound business ethics, you know, two things that we still need to be doing to this day. Anyway, I was the RBA president. And, um, and so I had opportunities to connect with a lot of people, I mean, you know, from all sides of the world, I mean, you know, from people who did you know, crystals and seances to people who were looking at organizational change, organizational development, human development, so forth. And uh, I was pl- planning to go speak at a conference in Switzerland as president of RBA. And, and I had been in touch with uh, Dr. Frankel's son-in-law, who uh, I still consider I'm staying in touch with and is a, is a great person and a friend. And, um, and so it was through him that I made the connection, say, look, I'm going to be in Switzerland. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'd like to love to come over to, to Vienna and uh, spend some time with Dr. Frankel and, and talk about what I was doing. To, and at the time, I was contemplating writing a book that would be focused on kind of mainstreaming, uh, because again, not as therapy, but as a, uh, not even a self-help thing. It was really kind of more of a developmental uh, application that anybody could do. You didn't have to be saying, well, I'm in therapy. You know, you could you can apply these things in your everyday life, in your everyday work, and you can do it at your family level, whatever. I, actually, I had somebody just today uh, in, the, in the States uh, a minister uh, asked for permission to do sermons based on the chapters in, in our book, Prisons of Our Thoughts. So that's how, you know, uh, touched and, and significant uh, this minister thought uh, the message was. So, you know, so that was a, that was kind of the, the impetus. And so I ended up going to Vienna State uh, at a hotel near the front where the Franco residence was near the University of Vienna campus. And uh, that's where we met. And that's when I... Uh, uh, presented the idea of writing a book that would mainstream his, his ideas, his thoughts for the non-clinical, non-therapeutic uh, audience, the trade audience, which um, uh, obviously that became a book that's now in over 20 languages. Um, third edition, um, it was just named one of the uh, top, in a list of the top 100 books, uh, meaning of life books of all time. So, which I'm pretty pretty proud of, the fact that it's it's, you know, a relatively new publication, you know, overall. And, um, and so I feel blessed that um, I became kind of an, op- a, have an opportunity to, like I said, not only stand on Dr. Frankel's shoulders, but to actually be part of a, he probably wouldn't want me to, to, to say this by any means, but kind of a, a marketing arm for getting his message out uh, into the universe. Because unlike Sigmund Freud, the Freudian school, Carl Jung, uh, Adelarian people, uh, they, they have much more of a, of a network of people doing and uh, spreading the word about mm-hmm. uh, 
their philosophy and their approach. And so I wanted to do the same thing. And I remember, actually I'm kind of uh, hyperlinking here, but I remember giving a, a keynote speech in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I remember talking, it was, the book hadn't come out yet, Prisons of Our Thoughts, but it was going to come out that, that year. And I remember doing this rah-rah self-help type of keynote about the search for meaning. And, uh, and uh, afterwards I asked the conference organizer, you know, you know, what'd you think of my keynote? And I remember him saying to me, he says, well, it was interesting. When somebody usually tells you it's interesting, you kind of wonder, okay, what's behind that? And then the next thing he said was, he says, well, you're kind of like the Tony Robbins of psychotherapy. <laughs> so he, I don't think he was really saying it as a total, you know, uh, compliment, but uh, I took it as that because I, I obviously I, I, I have a lot of respect and admire Tony Robbins, who also, by the way, has recommended the book. Um, so, you know, it just kind of evolved from that and it's grown and, it, and, and, and a meaning has legs. It's, it's a topic that isn't going to disappear. It's not like I wrote a book about, you know, uh, you know, some thing that has a time limited offer. Mm. Read it now because it's current. Yeah. Tomorrow it's no longer current. The search for meaning will always be current. Mm-hmm. Right. And the more that we can help people demystify what it is and how to approach it and give them, uh, give them hope, give them inspiration and help them aspire to something better than where they are today in terms of them finding that joy and that meaning, uh, it's something that, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. So what you're doing is a wonderful uh, journey as well. Yeah. And what was it, what was the actual, what was it like actually meeting Frankel face to face? What did he come across? Like, was he, how you expected him? Was he, was he kind of quiet or was he larger? I mean, he's obviously getting on in years when you actually met yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I mean, you would not at that time think that, uh, I mean, I didn't even think that, at that moment, so uh, that he was really getting on on years. I think when you read the uh, Stephen Covey's forward to Prisons of Our Thoughts, he met him later in the hospital setting, and Franco was very adamant about saying, "Well, don't talk to me like I'm going to check out. A lot, <laughs> a lot of work you have to do." So he was really passionate, very enthusiastic. And enthusiasm, you know, comes from uh, two Greek words. It basically means manifesting the God or Spirit within, and uh, yeah, and you can feel that spirit. I mean, it's like you know, I mean, I towered over him in terms of height, but he towered over me in terms of enthusiasm and spirit. And, you know, he was very engaging and his, it, it, I mean, the first thing he wanted to do is really um, ask what he could do for me, which was an amazing thing, you know, because I, you, know, you don't really expect that so much. You kind of like, you know, it's not like I was, you know, bowing down, you know, to the, the Dalai Lama or something like that. You kind of wonder if you're in some sort of mystical uh, setting, even though in a lot of ways it was, it was his study in his home of Vienna is flat. But the idea was is that uh, he was very understanding. He, he understood. I, I explained to him some things that I, I don't want to go into here that were very metaphysical in nature in terms of my life experiences. And he, he, he totally said he understood exactly what I was talking about, uh, which was, you know, mind-boggling for me. And then when I uh, I told him about the uh, the book that I was working on, uh, that's when he grabbed my arm. As I, I write about that book. He grabbed my arm and he said, Alex, yours is the book that needs to be written. And um, that became kind of a, a stamp on my soul uh, and uh, stayed with me ever since. And that's why I said I will always be, um, you know, not just grateful and feel blessed and honored that I have met him, but also feel uh, loyal to his, his life and legacy. And that's, that's never going to change in my, mm. in my life. It hasn't. Mm. 
I can imagine that being an extremely impactful meeting. That's for sure. Absolutely. That's for sure. Yeah, there's, there, there's, there's, there are meeting milestones. You know, there's in, in prisons and plots that we talk about many meetings. You know, there's little meetings that happen every day, right? And then the goal of uh, detecting the meaning of life's moments is that if you can string them together, you might find a pattern, and that pattern could become a larger meaning in terms of the significance of your life, what resonates with you, and so forth. And it, clearly, there are certain times in life, and that was one of them, being with Victor Tuckle, one-on-one in his office, was the fact that that was a meaning milestone in my life. It literally was life-changing for me, because it really kind of uh, reinforced, I mean, Anyway, I left RBA not not that long after that, and I started moving totally into this uh, into this realm of, of trying to advance the, the human quest for meaning mm-hmm. in life or and society. So that's never left my consciousness either. Yeah, and I think something. I think one of the things that is the most leaves the biggest incre- impression on me is often in life when you come across individuals who see something in you that no one else sees. And it's mm-hmm. kind of they right. trigger the belief in you, you that you don't even have in yourself yet, Absolutely. But, but they can see it, and that's kind of that's one of probably one of the most magical interactions I've have have had in my life. I've been with people who are like that, and they yeah. just it's and like that, it's like that, they can that, st- that, that stare that deep into your soul and see what's going on exactly. inside. Absolutely. Exactly, you know, you resonate at a deeper spiritual level on a plane that you can't really describe it, but it's there. And you're absolutely correct. I mean, it's just, it's something that's magical, it's mystical, and um, it's something that I'll, I'll never, never forget. And that's mm. what I've dedicated the rest of my life to continue to advance that cause. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Your book, the book to, to which we're referring, if people are listening or watching this, is the book Prisoners of Our Thoughts, which I've, uh, which I've got a copy of here as well, funny <laughs> enough, and uh, sitting on my, sitting on my desk. And what I love about the book, Alex, is how it's kind of, it's. It, it explains the principle of uh, uh, Victor Frankl's teachings, but also it's more of like a handbook and a kind of manual for finding meaning in life and uh, and work and the questions and practices and, and things that you can develop. But I like the fact as well that you talk in the book about the kind of cr- a number of times about this notion of the crisis of meaning. We've delved into it a little bit in today's conversation anyway, but how do you see this? crisis of meaning kind of manifesting itself the symptoms of it that we're seeing in the world right now yeah well again going back to my greek roots and going back to greek uh the greek origins of even the word crisis and so forth you know the crisis on a more positive optimistic note is really a point of inflection it's a point where you need to make a decision and so you can have as i said you can have many meanings and you can have many crises right and something like you, know, you get a flat tire or you miss the train you miss the tube right it doesn't necessarily mean that the world's going to sh- be shattered and, and, and fall apart but we have all those and so today you have situation where you have a crisis of meaning and the, re- the reason I like, we like to write about it as a crisis of meaning is because it's not something that is just uh, specific to any one locale, one type of person or community, or whatever, it's global mm-hmm. because people are questioning uh, the meaning of their existence, uh, whether it's the meaning of the job that they have, the career path, their relationships. They're questioning, are we going to have a future uh, financially? Uh, what about the environment? I mean, are we going to have trees 
Or are we all going to live in a world like the movie Soylent Green? <laughs> if you remember that one, you know, and, and a lot of young people don't know what that is. And I, I encourage anybody who's never heard of it, stream that movie, get it. Because that could be, you know, one of the things that it, it's, it's, it's hard to understand sometimes to what extent are these crises being described in the movies, the entertainment industry from years ago? Are we doing things today as a result of somebody, you know, making a film about it 20, 30, 40 years ago? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, are people doing the writing and so forth because the situation is now in a crisis, crisis level. Um, but there's different levels of crisis, just like there's different levels of meaning. And so it's up to us to decide what's happening in different countries, nation states, neighborhoods, families right now because of the shutdown, because of the pandemic. You know, what am I going to do? Am I going to reopen my business? Am I going to shut it down? Am I going to move to a different place? I mean, there, there's a big migration in a lot of places outside of high density areas, cities and so forth, because people, you know, hey, now I can work from home. I can be, you know, I'm, why am I commuting all this? Why am I spending all this time, on, you know, trying to get to work, to an office? And so these are all, if you don't want to call them crises, you could at least call them existential challenges that each of us is now facing. And as, you know, we heard this in terms of the Chinese uh, letters for crisis, that, you know, crisis also has opportunity. Mm-hmm. So the question is, in order to move from crisis stage to opportunity stage, we have to make a decision. And there's where personal responsibility comes into play again. That's where collective responsibility comes into play again. What kind of society, what kind of neighborhood, what kind of job, what kind of business do we want to have going forward? And so, so a crisis doesn't have to be, you know, that we're going to have the atomic bomb is going to drop on us tomorrow. We're going to have another pandemic. A crisis could be just as something like, hey, I'm in a, I have an existential crisis. I reach a certain stage in my life. Do I really love my career? Do I really like doing what I'm doing? Do I like living where I'm living? I mean, those are the kinds of things that the Guild of Dads, I'm sure, has to address, you know, in each 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 one of your your sessions, your podcasts. And so, yeah, so just so don't look at it like, you know, I've got to, you know, I have to live my life. Because people ask me this too, you know, do I do I have to be a prisoner in a concentration camp to understand the word crisis? No, God forbid, we don't want to have people going through that kind of a horrific experience. Uh, but let's learn from people like Victor Franco. Let's learn from people who've gone through these other types of experiences, including experiences I've had in my life, in order to help people not go that path, down that path, and kind of wake up. And, you know, just as I was saying in, in, in our book, you know, uh, it's more important to be aware than it is to be smart. I think we need to create more awareness. And the challenge that we were discussing earlier about the cancel culture is that we're not allowing people the freedom to increase their level of awareness. People are assuming that the truth is being fed to them. They watch the media. The media doesn't have any point counterpoint to it. And so you assume that if you and I start talking about some alternative to how we deal with an issue, we get canceled out. We're told we're egotistical, we're narcissistic. We're going right back to the same thing. We're going to another circle, you know, are we going to have freedom of thought? Are we going to have freedom of expression? It doesn't mean that, that you, have, you have the truth, I have the truth. But if we don't have a dialogue, we don't have an authentic discussion at least, a conversation about these things, it'll let people make their choices. We're assuming, you know, when I hear people tell me that we are in the lockdown, it reminds me, since we're talking about you know, also parenting in, 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 in a, as a subtopic here, because it is the Guild of Dads, when somebody tells me, you know, like our, our premier, 
here for our province that I'm living in, said, you know, there's a, the answer is simple to what we have going for right now. Stay home. Well, to me, it sounds like you're telling your kids, go to your room. Mm. You know? Yeah. And yeah. it's like, what does that mean? I mean, it's like, if you tell that to a teenager, they're going to rebel, typically. All right. But younger kids, maybe they'll go with it. Okay. You know, go to my room, you know, turn off the TV, whatever, you know, whether don't, don't, nowadays, you know, turn off your iPad or your computer, laptop. But the issue, when you tell somebody as an adult, go to your room, you're grounded. Because that's what that is. Go to your room, you're grounded. What does that say about our adult mentality? Mm-hmm. We don't trust them. They can't be personally responsible. And there are cases around the world. There are places in the United States and so forth where governors and mayors and so forth have been much more flexible about you take personal responsibility. You want to open up your business. You, you, you take care of the safeguards you know, for the people. And obviously, if you're afraid of going out you know, and you need to wear a mask or you're afraid that somebody's got you know, other uh, factors that could potentially impact negatively their health, you know, you take care of them, you focus. I mean, mm-hmm. last year at this time, we should have been focused on taking care of long-term care facilities, nursing homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, we see that's where the, the predominant, you know, uh, problem has been. Mm-hmm. Instead of focusing on shutting down the entire society. So again, I'm giving you my political view here on this, but it's a, it's a response. It doesn't mean that people have to agree with me. I don't care. I mean, I know people don't agree with me. And I, but the problem is that when I share a view, like I just did, Typically, I will get some response, and you probably get a comment on this podcast that I'm an idiot, that I'm narcissistic, I'm egotistical, I don't care about public health, I don't care about humanity, which is not the case. Mm. But I can't even express an alternative point of view in an era in which the cancel culture and political correctness has taken over mm. increasingly. Yeah. And it's accelerating. Yeah, it's an orthodoxy. And I think the thing is, is that I've noticed, if there's one thing I've noticed from speaking to people on this podcast is that when you have to dialogue about stuff you come to conclusions and you come to you get insights that you like there's been numerous occasions where i've been speaking to someone on the podcast and they've been talking about something i've been talking about something and then all of a sudden i have a penny drop in my head and i'm like "Mm." so let's link together what you're saying and what i'm saying and how about this what do you think about this and, th- and then all of a sudden that that is like the seed of another idea or another thought or whatever or, or, and generally it's kind of it, it, it can be a middle ground and but you can't reach the point of getting to growing new seeds of thought or new ideas unless you're willing to engage in civil discourse and meaningful dialogue and stuff and yeah. what I think that you know I talk a lot in terms of the content that I put out right now about role models because I think that it's important to set an example to you. The next generation are looking at adults right now, and particularly young children. They soak up everything like a sponge, so they're looking at how mum and dad react to the, what's going on at the minute, and that will be their reference point for the rest of their lives as to how they deal with crisis or how they deal with difficult situations, whatever. And also, they're having to find meaning in what is actually coming out of the TV set, or you know, and, and all this kind of stuff and that. And and so a lot of what I'm doing now is saying to, you know, your, what to your point earlier on about, you know, dads and white men and all the rest of it and stuff. A lot of what I do is actually giving guys the confidence really just to 
say what they think and say what yeah. and not be scared to say what they think and not be scared to kind of you know lead their families to set an example to be a role model and 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 it's almost acting like the um the antidote if you like to what is going on outside of the kind of family home and what is going on societally what is going on in governments and all this kind of stuff because one of the things that crops up frequently on the discussions I have is that of not just a meaning crisis but also a role model crisis you know when we were growing up there were there were typically the kind of you know the elders both older women but also older men who had wisdom experience knowledge restraint all of these really good solid virtues that are a dis- not only there are a kind of disappear disappearing breed if you like but also um those people have been shouted down as well because you know and these you've got individuals in the UK at the moment who are probably in their 70s or 80s they've seen they've seen all these mistakes being made before and they have the benefit of experience and wisdom and but they've been shouted down they're not being listened to and to me that just seems you know crazy and I've seen some of the scenes from you know like the evergreen campus and stuff uh, in terms of university professors, also been shouted down. I've had, yeah. I've had John Gray, the author of Men Are from Mars, Women Are from Venus, on on this podcast. Right. He's not allowed to go and speak in universities. They won't have him speak there because the idea that men and women are different is right. that they see that as offensive. So you've got all these kind of people who, you know, are very experienced in different different areas. But their experience is just it doesn't mean anything it's cancelled at the moment so and it's a it's a very strange strange place to be in that's for sure yeah no it's a it's a strange place and the unfortunate thing is i mean it's there's also a lot of hypocrisy going on because you have on one hand you have certain cultures or subculture if you want to call them that are that are highly respected in the in this age that we're in right now for example there's a, a indigenous people in, say, Canada, the United States, Native Americans, and so forth. Their cultures and their their rights. Maybe we talk about reparations. We talk about you know stuff, their human rights and so forth. And you know they're part of the racial systemic racism uh, narrative and so forth. They're they have high, highly respected. And part of the reason they're highly respected, and having lived in uh, in places where I work closely with. Uh, indigenous populations, not only in North America, but also obviously in Greece, because the island of Crete, where my family's from, you can't get more indigenous than that, because her family goes back, you know, to the ancient Minoans, which is 6,000 BC. But the idea is, is that what you just described is what the indigenous populations are proud of. Uh, They have, they don't, they don't have the same kind of issues with, say, the generation gap, because in ageism, because the elders are treated with respect, they're wise. You know, my grandmother, for example, would be somebody, or my grandfather would be somebody I would go to for guidance. Uh, Native Americans, you know, they would have, they would sit around in the kiva and they would, they would talk, you know, they would share the wisdom of their forefathers and so forth. And so there wasn't that, 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 that gap. And I think that that's one of the hypocrisies is on the one hand, we respect that in certain cultures because they're, they're in the, in the now they're trendy, you know, let's, we got to take care of the, uh, the indigenous. Let's not have any sort of cultural appropriation or whatever, that kind of thing. That's one issue. But the other issue is, is that the kind of connections, meaningful connections between different people, different groups, 
will never happen unless we reach some sort of a common ground. And the only way, and we've said this in our books, that you can achieve that common ground is if you go to a higher ground. And yet we're now in a space where we, we fight in the gutter, so to speak. You know, we're dirty. We're, you know, we don't want to talk about alternative facts, alternative opinions, whatever they may be, because they can't be, that can't exist. And so I'd also recommend, you know, again, this is our other book, The Opal Way, because The Opal Way is, in fact, about that Greek philosophical, mythological heritage, not only the, the, that we come from, that we want to share, but it, it shares the idea of, you know, multiple generations relying on each other and being able to help each other through hard times, good times, joyful times, whatever. And it's ironic because when this book came out, The Ripple Way, because it is a book that is grounded in ancient Greek philosophy and mythology, some of the criticisms that I would get, whether to my face or not directly, is the fact that Greek philosophers are a bunch of old white guys. So therefore we discount them. They're not, you know what I mean? And it's like, and even there's actually people trying to rewrite history and trying to make uh, uh, ancient Greeks different than, than they were. And so the idea is, is that why can't we just accept the history and have a discussion about it, pull out the things that matter the most to people in this, in this age, agree to disagree when the time is, you know, is, is, is right. I mean, and not, you know, want to go to war. Oh, and it's actually, it's worse than a war, because in a war, you battle it out with your opponent. We don't get a chance to be, you know, opponents, mm. because we get canceled. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're, we're off of Twitter. We're off of YouTube. We're off of, you know, you know nobody invites you to a news program to talk about a counter position on a particular public issue. And I think that's, to me, that's, that's moving away from meaning. It's not bringing mm. us closer to meaning. Yeah. Because ultimately, we're all like human beings trying to describe, we're blind, and we're trying to describe, that might even be politically correct to call this now, we're blind people trying to describe, you know, an elephant, and, mm. and we're at different positions, you know, one has touching the tail, the other one's a trunk, and the other one's, you know, by the, by the foot. And so we don't really know, because we're blind, what the actual truth is, that that's an elephant, and it's this size, and this shape, and this kind of thing. And I think... We presume when you hear these stories and you see the ads on TV and you see the movies and you see the narratives that are being pushed out by the media, that they have the absolute truth. Mm. And um, mind, it, it, it boggles the mind that, well, maybe there are other ways of looking at things. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you're wrong. It doesn't mean I'm right. But why can't we discuss these things as civil human beings? Yeah. And I think what Victor Franco wanted was people to achieve their full humanness. You know, and that's the reason for the search for meaning. And I think in many respects, the political narrative that's being pushed today is going to run counter to people achieving their highest potential as human beings because it wants to fit them into a mold. And that's going to basically pull us away from the human quest for meaning mm -hmm. because government and social media giants and businesses will tell you what your meaning is. Yeah. And I, I disagree with that. And also, and also, the strong, the strong message that I that, that I took from the actual, the actual spirit of logotherapy as well is is one of taking personal responsibility. And if you're constantly blaming someone else or portraying yourself as a victim, that in and of itself is going to take you further away from meaning. Surely, it's going to take you further away from meaning. We should be moving from victimhood to victory. 
mm. you know, helping people learn how to be, you know, the driver of their own car, their own personal vehicle, and and help them, you know, move towards the light mm. because that's really what it is. I mean, I, I years ago I used to give talks about this, and I used to compare the search for meaning to Peter Pan and Tinkerbell. And Tinkerbell, you know, there was if you recall the story, if you remember this, you know, the Tinkerbell, you know, would lose uh, it's her light put into a box because she needed to kind of fly around here with the light. And in many respects, when you help somebody find meaning in their life, they become Tinkerbell. Their light shines. You can see it. And so when people talk about, you know, the eyes or the window to the soul and so forth, when people's spirits are elevated, this goes all the way back into my RBA days as president of RBA, you can go in and you can see I can go into a working a workplace, for example, and I can tell when people are excited, enthusiastic, and passionate, and they're finding meaning in their work and their meaning in their relationships with their clients, with their patients, with their students, with their coworkers. I can go into another setting, and it's like a scene from the movie. If you've ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense, I see dead people. Because they're going to work, they park their soul back at home or outside the door, and they're just basically robots. And we're increasingly moving. I mean, eventually, why not? And I would just turn everything over to robots and AI and see mm. where meaning goes with that. Mm. Good luck. Mm. So yeah, it's a uh, it's we, we it's, covered a lot of different topics here. So it's 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 uh, like I said to you before we came on air tonight, Alex. I'm sure that I could probably do a five-hour uh, long-form discussion with you, and we could go everywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we probably will do again, re- yeah. re- repeat and go on into some of these yeah. concepts because I'm sh- I'm sure that we're going to have another discussion. That is that is for sure. But I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion this evening. It's been an absolute privilege speaking to you Thank and you. hearing, you know, the inspiration behind your work, the influence that uh, Victor Frankel had on you, your meeting that you had with him. And yeah, it's just been an amazing discussion. So I, I, I'm I'm eternally grateful to you, sir, for joining me on this uh, well, podcast. Thank you so much, Joe. And I, I I look forward to staying in touch with you, and ideally one of these days uh, connecting in the UK or maybe Greece. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. I definitely I'm dreaming of the Mediterranean sunshine uh, and yeah. and crystal clear waters I think a lot at the of moment. You are right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. That's all right. That's no worries at all. If people want to link up with you and find out more about the work that you do, what is the best way for them to do so, Alex? Well, our our our, our main website is uh, Global Meaning Institute, all one word, globalmeaninginstitute.com. And uh, they can also, uh, I think I posted something uh, about a, uh, I write a, a column for psychology today mm-hmm. online. So uh, they can read some of the articles that I posted there for the last few years. And, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, shoot me uh, through our website uh, an email if there's any questions okay. for follow-up. Okay, that's excellent. I look forward to seeing this posted as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and I'll send you all the uh, I'll send you all of the info on it as well, and, and link you up. That's that's for sure. Yeah. I'm gonna read the books. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> my, only, my only marketing plug. Yeah, that's all right. I think that's one of the best ways to kind of follow up with what we talked about today. Yeah. Um, and I'll say my last word here. There's a German psychologist by the name of uh, Ebbinghaus, Hermann Ebbinghaus, who is kind of a, in the memory and retention field, uh, who came up with a, a notion called the law of the forgetting curve. 
And basically, I'm, you know, I'm going to simplify it, but basically the forgetting curve says that after 24 hours, most people, whatever information they're presented with, will start to lose you know, 75% of, uh, of the information. After 30 days, it's over 90%. And so you know, a few months from now, people will forget anything I said here on this podcast. So you need to find ways to alter the forgetting curve. And one way of doing that is reading the books, uh, reading some of these articles to follow up, asking questions, following you on your podcast and so forth, because that'll help people keep this in their consciousness. Excellent. Excellent. So with that, I will close. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one last question before I send you on your okay. way, and it's a question that I don't prime any of my guests for, but it won't come okay. as any surprise to you. Okay. Alex, what is it in life that gives you meaning? I think the thing that I mean, I, I'm gonna kind of steal this in a lot of ways from what I learned from Dr. Franco, but to me, the most important thing that gives me meaning is the search for meaning. The fact that I have that consciousness that doesn't allow me to say I've reached the meaning destination; it's over with. No, it's not. It's one, and I've, I've, I've embraced the notion that the search for meaning is a journey that will never end, and that I've accepted that. And so, everything that comes, people come into my life, experiences I have in my life, and so forth, obviously have different levels of meaning for me when I discover, you know, their value. But I think the most important thing for my life has been that I've not given up. So even in the hardest times, I've been, I've been to hell and back a few times in my life. Uh, that's another podcast. Um, and so the idea is, is that to go through the traumas and the, the trials and tribulations and come out of it. And again, I have no way would I compare my, my experiences as, as bad as they may have been to the experiences of somebody like uh, Dr. Frankel. But I think the idea of, and this is what I learned from him, and that's partly in my soul because of that, and he pulled it out of me, is that he could have given up. He could have been you know, a, a bitching, moaning person for the rest of his life. He could have just said, you know, oh, the Germans are all bad, and they're all Nazis, and they're all this and that. And he did. He pursued not only his own life with meaning, but he ensured that he could work to help others do the same. And I think that, to me, that's a journey that is worth pursuing. And it's a path that I hope that you continue on as well. I love it. I love it. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. And I'm okay. going to uh, I'm going to send you on your way. But once again, thank you. It's been a privilege, sir. Th- thank you. A massive thank you to Alex Patakos for talking to me today and sharing his experience and insight with me. You can catch Alex over on Twitter and his website is www.globalmeaninginstitute.com. The book we mentioned that he was urged to write by Dr. Frankel is called Prisoners of Our Thoughts. I will link all this up in the show notes along with the other stuff we discussed over at guildofdads.com. I was pretty thrilled to be speaking to Alex, not least because Viktor Frankl was such a massive influence on him personally, but also he was urged by Frankl to write prisoners of our thoughts not long before he passed away. The reason I wanted to speak to Alex is because one of my beliefs is that meaning is at the core of all of us and that lack of it has far-reaching consequences. It just so happens that our discussion took place during a pandemic and pinch point in history where a lot of these elements are colliding together to create a perfect storm right now. We can learn an enormous amount from both Frankel and Alex's teachings which are as applicable today as they were 
after World War II. Not least, the concept of taking responsibility for your future. Not apportioning blame and how keeping dialogue open is imperative to society's future. We are wise to learn from what history has told us in this respect. There's also a video of this interview over on the Guild of Dads YouTube channel and you can link up with me over on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook using the handle at Guild of Dads. I'm teaching you how to follow a simple system and plan just like many of my guests in order to transform all areas of your life so that you can live more purposefully with much greater fulfillment and meaning at the same time as becoming the man and dad you always wanted to be. It's all in my ebook, The Dad Blueprint. You can grab it free at guildofdads.com forward slash dad. In order to have a positive impact on the world, we improve ourselves and inspire others. The fee for this show is that you share it with others so that they may benefit from anything you find useful or interesting. If you know someone that could do with improving their relationships, could do with a life rethink or different perspective, share this episode with them. The best bit, you don't have to tell them why you're sharing it with them, but it could be just what they need to hear. Hopefully, you find something insightful in every episode, so share with dads you know. In the meantime, live a life of vision, action and meaning, apply what you hear, and we'll see you next time.